Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. But the relationship between money and happiness is clear. And that is there is a relationship from kind of zero income to call it $100,000. There's a direct correlation between that income and your happiness. People who make $80,000 a year are much happier than people making 30. But once you get to a point where you have a certain level of housing, opportunities, financial security can absorb a healthcare scare, have enough money to take vacations. In St. Louis, that's 80 grand a year. In Manhattan or San Francisco, that's at least five or 600 grand a year. So a lot of it's where you live. But once you get to that point, happiness and income flatline. And that is, there's no correlation. Now, my advice around money and happiness is, yeah, in your 20s and 30s, bust a move. Be very focused on getting to that number. And that number is a function of where you live, your expectations, the kind of lifestyle you want to live. And it's important to get to that number. But once you get to that number, happiness is driven by other things, not an increase in your income. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. 
Nutrition.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Scott, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your book by way of your publisher, who happens to be also the same publisher that I have, Penguin Portfolio, uh, The Algebra of Happiness. And I loved this book because it wasn't just a, a standard sort of happiness research book, but it was filled with all sorts of really interesting anecdotes and nuggets from your life experience, all of which we will get into. But uh, before we get into all that, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Uh, sure. My dad, both my parents are immigrants. Uh, both were pulled out of um, school when they were 11 years old. And I think my dad was 13 to work and help support the family and kind of depression and post-depression era, World War II era, um, Scotland and England. They came to the U.S. with, I think, $90. And my dad was a salesman and my mom was a secretary. But my mom raised me. My parents split up when I was eight years old. So I was, you know, the, the superhero in my life is my mother who raised me on a secretary's salary on her own. And, you know, the impact on it had on me, quite frankly, was pretty dramatic. It's not a sob story. There was a lot of uh, laughter and discipline and, um, you know, love in, in my household with just me and my mom. But uh, economic adversity uh, really registered with me at a young age. When my mom uh, got diagnosed with cancer, ultimately the cancer that would kill her, I was in graduate school. And uh, it was very um, eye-opening for me. And I remember being um, in some situations with her doctors and trying to manage her health care where it was clear to me that people at, in our kind of weight class economically didn't have access to the same options and same service and same health care as wealthy people. And it was somewhat, as someone who felt very protective of their mother, uh, it was very um, uh, a kind of emasculating and shaming, quite frankly. And to be blunt, and this sounds crude, I decided I was going to be rich. And it was very motivating for me. And people often talk about, I think people are impressed that I came from fairly modest means and I've done well economically. I'm one of the 11% that came from one of the lower quintiles to the upper quintiles. I'm always impressed with wealthy people or people who are born into wealth and manage to be productive, hardworking citizens because, and I'm not trying to be funny, if I'd been born into money, I think the only two things I know would be in my life are one, a Range Rover and two, cocaine. My economic mm. success and drive came from a lack of money. And I don't know if I have that fire uh, that would have said, I just need to be a good citizen, I'm going to work hard. So my parents' background, their uh, economic success or lack thereof was hugely important and motivating to me. Yeah. So losing a mother at, you know, such an early age, I wonder what decisions did you make about uh, your own life going forward uh, when you lost your mother that young? Well, it happens to all of us. And for, for me, it was kind of the defining, or one of the defining moments in my life. My mom was the light of my life. And, I, you know, as a 54 year old man, it, it, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing uh, to talk about, you know, your mom in these terms, but it was, it, it was something that, you know, I was kind of never the same. It, everybody has a moment in their life where they realize the harshness of life and that uh, we talk about success and Instagram and this ultimate life and perfect life that we all think we're entitled to and that happens. And the reality is everybody knows tragedy. 
everybody knows economic strain, or most people do. Everybody knows professional failure, at least the people I know, even the successful ones. And unfortunately, if you live a long life, somebody you love is going to get sick and die. And that was kind of my first bump up against reality. And I think it happens to a lot of us. And it just sort of, you know, it gives you a lot of perspective. That's a good thing. Uh, the bad thing is there's just a certain amount of joy that kind of comes out of your life and is extinguished. But my, you know, it was me and my mom against the world. And so when I lost her, it was, um, it was devastating. It took me a few years to get over it, quite frankly. I found I was just sort of stuck and kind of going nowhere. But this is something everybody can relate to as a, a, you know, our parents get sick and they die. So I don't think my experience is unique. I think what's mm. different is as a heterosexual white, white male in his 40s and 50s is speaking openly about how much I miss my mom. You know, for whatever mm. reason, guys in my cohort don't seem comfortable talking or talking about it and discussing it. And when I write about it, I hear from a lot of people who just say, yeah, I've never recovered from my father's death or I can't. I can't get past losing my mom. So it was, you know, like all of us, I don't know. Are your parents still around? Yeah, they are. And it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about this. And I've dropped this, mentioned this on the, on the show a handful of times. So sometime last year, I had uh, Frank Ossetseski here as a guest. He's the director of the Zen Hospice Project. And I, I told him, I said, you know, Frank, for the longest time, I used to be afraid of being alone for the rest of my life. And then I hit 40. And I said, you know, I'm not afraid of being alone after a few bad relationships. I'm afraid that my parents won't be around for the big milestone moments in my life, like getting married and having kids because that haven't happened yet. And he said, don't let that be an excuse not to spend time with them now. So I go home for dinner every Sunday. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. it's not like everything's perfect, but it made me value uh, the time that I do have with my parents at a whole other level. Yeah, they're just there are a few absolutes. But one of them is that you're just not going to regret time with your parents. You're not going to regret spoiling them. They do ultimately turn into your children. Um, people, mm -hmm. there's a lot of well-documented, um, uh, research on the, the joy and reward of raising children. I would argue that if you have the opportunity and the resources and many people do not, but if you do have the opportunity and resources to help a parent's exit, be more graceful, it is very rewarding. And you hold it as a source of pride the rest of your life. I moved in with my mother into a seniors, a senior living community. The last six months of her life took a leave from NYU and decided you know, I have, I have the resources, I have the flexibility, I'm going to do this right. And I'm going to spend a, you know, a fraction of the time that she spent in the first six months of my life on her last six months. And it was something that was very rewarding. And that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be grateful for the opportunity to have had the rest of my life. So I think if you're in a position to help make your parents exit more graceful, and we don't like to talk about this stuff, it's very rewarding. It creates an arc of satisfaction. That is something that uh, a lot of things came together that I feel I was able to achieve and to give, you know, the most important person in, uh, up until that point in my life. Yeah. So I know from, from having read the book that you're a father, I wonder if that has had an impact on your own parenting. That's an interesting question. My mom was always, you know, my parents were European and so they weren't very open and very affectionate. And I decided that I would go the other way. And I, I'm fascinated by evolutionary anthropology and more pack animals and touch is just so important and reinforcing. And a lot of the way I, with a lot of the approach I have to kids are quite frankly, kind of zigging where my parents were zagging. My parents were European. Um, there wasn't a lot of discussion. There wasn't a lot of laughter. There wasn't a lot of anything in my household when they were together. 
my dad and I are, are uh, have a good relationship, but he wasn't very affectionate with me. And I decided I was going to go just the opposite way. Or let me put this way: he was more, he was, probably, he was a lot more affectionate with me than I think his his father was. He, you know, he sort of checked the box. He was a much better dad to me than his dad was to him. But the real lesson I've taken, and I don't know if it's my parents, is uh, is around affection with my kids, especially my boys. And I've decided, you know, I'm taking affection back. But there's a lot of I think as Westerners, or at least in the U.S., we tend to see affection between males as some sort of hint of weakness. And I find that the affection given to my boys and affection given back is just incredibly reinforcing and satisfying for uh, for both of us. So it's something, you know, it's something I decided early that I was going to make a real effort to do. Yeah. So <clears throat> I know from having read read the book that early in your life, nothing really indicated that you would end up being successful. I remember the stories about UCLA and, and barely getting in. And that's why I felt there were so many parallels to your story and mine, because I, you know, barely graduated from Berkeley with a, a 2.97. Um, and I wonder what changed, what changed that led you down a trajectory? Cause I know you've written multiple books. Um, you're, you know, teaching at, at a university. So I wonder what is it that, that, you know, led to a shift other than your mom passing? Was there anything else that made you just say, okay, you know what, this is like, I'm going to make sure this changes. You know, a couple of things just happened in my life where I got very focused economically. And a lot of it was just kind of growing up and maturing, but you talk about you, you know, you and I are both beneficiaries of the generosity and vision of California taxpayers and the regions of UC. I graduated undergrad from UCLA with a 2.27 GPA and mm -hmm. uh, Berkeley let me into business school. And the reality is that just would no longer happen. And one of the things I worry about is that I was a remarkably unremarkable kid and I was given remarkable opportunities by California taxpayers and UC. And I ended up uh, blooming a little bit later in life. And now I'm, a, I think, a productive citizen, pay a lot of taxes. I'm uh, involved in University of California, again, in, a, in what, I, what I'd like to think of a meaningful way. But I worry that guys like you and me just don't get those opportunities anymore, that despite the fact that the number of people going to college has increased dramatically, uh, the number of seats that have been offered by the top universities has stayed flat. So Stanford's applications have tripled in the last 30 years. But the number of seats that they've increased has, has, they haven't increased their freshman class by anything substantial because we as academics, and I include myself in this, have become drunk with the notion of exclusivity. And that is we no longer see ourselves as public servants. We are see ourselves as luxury brands. And every fall, the head of admissions and the deans brag about how impossible it is to get into the college. And you can't be at a party without someone joking that they could never get into their alma mater today. But that's a bad thing, because on a risk-adjusted basis, it's likely that your children will be somewhere in your weight class from a character, a work, and an intellect dimensions. And the fact that they're not going to get to go to UCLA, but they're going to have to go to Pepperdine, or they're not going to get to go to USC, they're going to end up at uh, UC Boulder, which is a good school, but not as good as SC, all makes sense. And what it all leads to is that for the first time in the history of our country, 30-year-olds are not doing as well as their parents were at the age of 30. And unfortunately, what has been the great upward lubricant of the middle class education has turned into a caste system where your education kind of identifies who you are in your trajectory in your 20s. And it's getting very hard for the unremarkable. There's never been a better time to be remarkable in the U.S., but 99% of us and 99% of our children are not remarkable. And the fact that unremarkable kids can no longer go to good schools, they can just go to average or mediocre schools 
is a negative forward-looking indicator on our society. Yeah. I, I mean, I knew there was no way we we're going to get out of this conversation without talking about education because you're, you know, at the education in, institution that happened to reject me for business school, which is still to this day, one of my jokes is, you know what, I, the one place I ever want to be able to go and do a speaking engagement is at NYU Stern just for... for okay, see yourself invited. Uh, well, let me know. I, I would be happy to come and talk to people about, you know, why that was probably the best damn thing that ever happened to me. But that actually takes us in, and I actually went to Pepperdine for business school and it was a real contrast from going to Berkeley. Uh, but that just takes me to my next question, which is, is, you know, you're in an institution where it, I think NYU definitely falls into one of these institutions that you're talking about. And you even say so in the book that you shouldn't go to business school. And so I wonder, uh, you know, like, are, is there a way out of this mess? I mean, you've got a mountain of student loan debt, um, presidential candidates. I know this is a huge part of numerous people's platform. Like I, I am 100 percent certain that's going to that it will be the determining factor in my vote for somebody at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wonder, you know, as an educator, how do you think about what the future of this is going to look like if it's not going to be affordable, if people aren't going to be able to get into top notch institutions? Are we just going to keep riddling them with debt and you know, wishing them luck. Yeah. So there's a lot there to unpack. And I want to be clear. I do think business school is worthwhile for some people. I, mm-hmm. I think if you go to a top 20 or even a top 50 school, the ROI is there. But business mm-hmm. school has really become kind of the, the, the domain of the elite and the aimless. And that is people who come out of school, have good pedigrees, work hard, smart, but don't know what they want to do with their lives. They need kind of two years to sort of figure it out while increasing their currency in the marketplace. What I don't recommend is you go to a mediocre business school and stack up debt. I also don't recommend if you're doing well in the private sector and you know what you want to do, that not, you know, unlike when I came out of undergrad and worked, worked for Morgan Stanley, everyone just went to business school to punch their ticket. You no longer need that certification if you're doing well in the private sector. You can blow by business school. But getting to your question is a huge problem. And I think there's a lot that can be done and there's no one solution. Um, you have an explosion in the cost of college. And there's a few things fueling that. One is that supply and demand. There's just more people trying to get into the best schools from all over the world. Uh, the ultimate luxury brand or luxury good in America is not Ralph Lauren or you know, Cadillac. It's a degree from an Ivy League institution. And as a result, we're able to sell these quarter of a million dollar products, which is what it costs to go to one of these schools for four years at a 95% gross margin. There's no other product like that in the history of consumer goods. And key to that from their viewpoint is scarcity, but that's in direct contrast to being a public good or a social good. We're going to need to dramatically decrease costs. And there's a couple of things. Some are easy, some are hard. The first is, and again, this goes to the man in the mirror test, there is, there is social welfare for the undereducated in the form of food stamps or welfare. And then there's social welfare for the overeducated, and that's called tenure. And while I work with one of the most exceptional faculties in the world, I would argue that a third to two-thirds of all tenured professor professors around the United States are the equivalent of an overpaid union that lacks um, the artisanship of, of uh, most union members. And that is, it's exceptionally expensive. And at some point, people are going to connect the dots between this guild called tenure and an explosion in uh, cost. And until we uh, start putting the, the, holding the feet of academics to the flames of the marketplace, I don't think costs are going to come down. We fueled cost escalation with cheap capital, that is government-backed student loans. I, be, I believe that over time, 
We're probably going to need the school itself to guarantee these loans as opposed to the government. Cheap credit is always a function of a bubble and an escalation in prices. And I think that'll be painful, but I think we're going to have to do something around the credit side. Uh, I think we're going to have to dramatically expand the number of seats. I think we should start taxing endowments. If Harvard doesn't grow its its admissions and its seats by greater than the population growth, it should tax its endowment. If you're growing your endowment faster than you're growing your admittees, you're no longer a nonprofit. You're a private enterprise, and that money should be taxed. Mm -hmm. So the head of Harvard admissions stated last year that they could have doubled their freshman class and not sacrificed any quality. And my question would be, well, with a $35 billion endowment, why aren't you? So we need a different gestalt. We need uh, academics to realize that we're public servants, not luxury goods. We need to put these endowments to work. We need governments to figure out how to bring down costs and force public universities and fund the dramatic expansion of first-year um, seats. And the, the interesting thing here is that it's actually the people who've lost here the most there's some good things here. The first is more, more and more women are going to college. 70% of high school valedictorians are girls, so that's a great thing. Uh, kids from lower-income neighborhoods, while they, have to, they still have to overcome enormous obstacles, Harvard can find them, and they can find Harvard. Uh, Harvard has one of the greatest income diversities across its student base. But the people who have been hurt the most are actually, and then rich people have no problem. They get into schools you know, whether it's Aunt Becky or, or just figuring out a way to get them the right test prep or just the res what resources can buy in terms of their preparation and helping them get into the right schools or their rich friends are on the boards of different schools. The people that have been hurt the most are what I call the good but not great kids from the middle class. And that is, um, and it sounds like you and I were in that category. And that is, we yeah. were fine. We did okay, but we weren't remarkable. And those are the ones who are no longer getting into good schools. So there is a variety of things we're going to need to do to solve this problem. But I think it starts with a man in the mirror. I think we have to realize, I, I teach 180 kids on Monday nights. They pay $7,000 each. That's $1.2 million in tuition. That's $100,000 a night. And I'm not a modest person. I'm good at what I do. But am I worth $100,000 for two hours and 40 minutes? No. <laughs> so there needs to be some sort of technology solution, government solution, and a change in attitude among the faculty at world-class business schools. We are here to serve the public, not to be, you know, not to be De Beers or Mercedes-Benz. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've said before, I think in the United States, education is a business, not a service. It's interesting. So I, I wonder, I'd imagine the types of students who come to you are very much like the types of students uh, me and my sister were in in you know high school uh, with very specific messages from our parents about what it means to be successful in the world, what looks good. And I understand, you know, my, my parents' perspective of the value of security because of the fact that they were Indian immigrants, as you know, your parents were, and to my parents in their generation growing up, is secure it was either security or poverty. There was no in-between. Yeah. So they were very clear on the fact that we want you to choose paths that have the potential to earn you money. And at the same time, I think in some ways they did as a disservice. Uh, you know, my parents wisely talked me out of being a music major at USC because I was playing the tuba and my dad was like, do you really want to spend the next four years in a practice room? Not only that, there's only one in every major orchestra. So you have to wait for somebody to die yeah. for a job yeah. to open up. So I wonder what are the narratives that people who are your students are being taught about success and does that change with age? Because I, I think that what I value right now at age 40 
is very different than the way I would have chosen a career at 21. When I was in Berkeley, it was pedigree yeah. and that was everything. Yeah. You know, yeah. how does this look on a resume and how big is the paycheck? And I wonder uh, at a place like NYU, what is your experience of this? Well, I think that the tension you felt between you trying to find your own path and your parents being very practical about the realities of the world and how important economic security is, I think that's a healthy tension. And I, I think you're mm-hmm. both right. And that is if we all did, you know, your parents are going to make sure that you don't miss too many trains and you're going to make sure that you miss a few. And, and that's important. The, the trajectory in your 20s, unfortunately, the reality is your income trajectory in your 20s largely indicates that same trajectory for the rest of your life. So it's very important. And kind of coming out of a cannon and getting real traction early is just, it's just very important. And unfortunately, college plays a pretty big, a pretty big role in that. I would say the unhealthiest kind of dogma or tagline we hear at NYU is the luncheon speakers are always, not always, they're either very interesting people or they're billionaires. And mm-hmm. the billionaires kind of have this tagline where they sort of end the, 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 the speech with some version of follow your passion. And, I, you mm-hmm. know, generally I find that's pretty much total bullshit because it's usually the guy who's telling you to follow your passion is the guy who made his first billion in iron ore smelting. And now he's producing <laughs> right. Broadway. Yeah. And what I tell the kids is that your job as a young person is to find what you're good at. And then to commit to becoming great at it. Because if you become great at something, the accoutrements of being great, respect from your colleagues, money, a greater selection set of opportunities and mates, access to better health care, a sense of pride, all of those things will make you passionate about whatever it is that's affording you those things. So there are people, there are tax accountants in the U.S. They didn't grow up thinking they were passionate about the tax code, but when they found they were good with numbers, when they found they knew how to you know, navigate the intersection of, of math, tax code, and a complex uh, tax law, and they became super successful, they became passionate about tax law because where you find your passion is what you're great at. So the passion areas, if you will, I would have liked to have been an athlete. I would have liked to have made my money as an athlete. And I lived in athlete housing at UCLA and my friends that were much better athletes than me, I was blessed with being a mediocre athlete. And I figured that out right away at UCLA. But my friends who were amazing athletes, you know, triple A ball and baseball, Seoul Olympics and water polo. I don't think they trade that experience, but they got to start on their career six or seven later, years later than I did. And you just have, a, have, have to have an honest conversation with yourself. And that is if you want to open a nightclub or a restaurant or you want to go to work for Vogue, you better get a lot of psychic income because the actual return on investment from a monetary standpoint isn't going to be nearly as great as the people who go to work for software as a service and healthcare. And that is return on investment is traditionally inversely correlated to how sexy an industry is. And uh, this is my investment strategy. A friend of mine is opening a members only club in downtown Manhattan for musicians and artists. I won't get near the thing. Another friend of mine is opening a business that creates a platform for uh, fixtures and plumbing supplies. It sounds like, you know, if it sounds like if you work there, you'd want to put a gun in your mouth, I say invest in that company. Because careers are asset classes. And when people don't like them and they're not sexy, the returns go up. And when they're sexy and they have an overinvestment of human capital, the returns get starched out. So, you know, get economically secure, find something you're good at, become great at it. And I promise you, you'll become passionate about it. Yeah. 
So it's interesting you say that. Uh, one of the like, yeah. So I, I, I think I, my probably first ten years of my career, real struggle. Like it was only in my thirties that I hit my stride, and I feel like I'm basically. You know, I spent my thirties doing what most people did in their twenties. I'm spending my forties doing what most of my friends did in their thirties. And you may have seen this. This recent book came out uh, by a guy named Rich Callgard, which talks about late bloomers. So I wonder, you know, one, what is your view on that? Like, is it, you know, if somebody hears this, they might be like, oh, am I just totally screwed? Uh, the other thing, you know, you said in the book, you said it's difficult to get economic security with just your salary as you will naturally raise or lower your lifestyle to match what you make. So I wonder if you could address those two things. Yeah. So look, there's just no getting around it. We live in an ageist world. And especially if you work in tech, what I find is if someone walks into a conference room or a meeting in tech and they're over the age of 40, and they're not running the place, they're not already a multimillionaire, the general assumption is, dude, what went wrong? And w- just as I think there was, there's always sort of an ism or a bigotry ex- in the workplace. And I think in the 70s and 80s, people would say it was racism. I would argue it was sexism, that women just weren't afforded the same opportunities and in income that men were, that that was the biggest ism. I actually think the biggest ism now in the fastest growing parts of our economy is ageism. And that is a general sense that if you're not in your 20s or your 30s, and again, you're not running the place that, you know, you sort of fucked up and there's something wrong with you. So I think there's an opportunity around hiring people in their 50s who, for whatever reason, you know, maybe they decided to have more balance in their life. Maybe they took time off to raise kids. Maybe they took care of a parent or maybe they just always want, you know, weren't totally weren't focused on howling in the money storm. So there always is opportunity, but there's just no getting around it. Uh, the world should be more less ages, but it is. And it's frightening how important it is to your parents, you know, advice. It's frightening how important it is if you want to achieve a certain level of economic security, how important it is that you register those gains and kind of pay those dues in your 20s. Because as you get into your 30s and 40s, shit gets real. You start getting kids, your parents get older, and you don't have the time and sometimes the energy to make the sort of commitment and put your shoulder down the way you can in your 20s and 30s. So a lot of it is an honest conversation with yourself. What are your expectations? I ask my kids, what are their expectations in terms of income? And almost all of them expect to be not in the top 10%. They expect to be in the top 1%. And I don't know anybody in the top 1% that hasn't spent the majority of their 20s and 30s totally focused on work. I think there's a myth of balance among the top income earners that uh, we've all heard of people. We maybe know somebody, and it, there's well-publicized examples of somebody who's just so talented. They make millions of dollars. They are in great shape. They have a great relationship with their parents. They donate time at the ASPCA, and they have a food blog. Assume you are not that person, and if you expect to be in the top decile, at much less the top one percent, it's going to require an extraordinary trade-off. And I, you know, it's not aspirational. It also, you know, you talked about passive income and how current income isn't really the way to riches. Yeah, it's the definition of rich. And this is one of my equations. The definition of rich is your passive income is greater than your burn. So I have a close friend who runs a large division at a bulge racket investment bank, and he makes about between five and seven million dollars a year. California, uh, New York and Manhattan taxes, he takes home about three and a half million between an ex-wife two kids for child support from the first wife, three kids from his current marriage, a townhouse in the West Village, a home in the Hamptons. He spends all of it. He's poor. My father and his wife 
get $48,000 a year in Social Security and his pension from the Royal Navy and some income from a trailer park they bought 20 years ago. $48,000 in passive income, and they spend $40,000 a year. They're rich. So as soon as possible, try and find sources of passive income, whether it's dividends, whether it's real estate that you can rent out, whether it's a forced savings plan. And young people, um, what I call kids, focus on their top line. They focus on their income. Adults focus on their burn. Try and figure out a path and be willing to adjust that path based on where it looks like your income trajectory is. It says at a certain point in my life, in my 50s or 60s, I, I am, it is within striking distance that my passive income will be greater than my burn. And a lot of time that involves reducing your burn as opposed to killing it on the top line. But passive income over your burn is the definition of rich, not how much money you make. Hmm. Wow. That is is a really, really eye-opening observation. So I wonder then, you know, one of the things you also said was that our competitive instincts lead us to anchor off the most successful people we know, and we're disappointed when the person in the mirror doesn't match those expectations. And I think that's more amplified in a world where you have social media, where you have Facebook, where everybody puts their achievements on display, you know, successful bloggers post their income reports. Uh, how do you contend with that? How do you resolve that paradox? Like, what is your advice? I mean, I know you've written books about these these big tech companies. Well, uh, you're 100 percent right, Sri. It's you know, it's kind of thrown in your face. And key to evolutionary progress is the competitiveness gene, where we anchor off the most successful uh, person we know, and we think that's the standard. And that's important. You need goals. You need to aspire. You need to grasp beyond your reach. The problem is, it's hard to kind of get off the hamster wheel and take stock of your blessings. And typically, there is an arc to happiness. So most people are generally very happy until they're 25. It's about college, exploration, experimentations with, with drugs and sex and Star Wars. It's, you know, youth is a lot of fun. And then from kind of 25 to 45, it's what I call the shit gets real part of your life, where you realize you're not going to have a fragrance named after you, or you likely won't be a senator. And maybe you're not a multimillionaire by the time you're 30, even though everyone told you you could be and should be, and people who are are shoved in your face on your Instagram feed, and you get disappointed in yourself. And then something wonderful happens in your 40s and 50s, and that is you start taking stock of your blessings, you realize that you're very fortunate, and you start thinking about all the good things, and you get happier. So what I kind of tell young people is, one, if you feel stressed in your late 20s and 30s, it's kind of a natural part of the journey and to keep on keeping on. And then the one piece of advice when seniors are surveyed and research on seniors, when they say, what is the one piece of counsel you would give to your younger self? Consistently, the number one thing that comes back is they wish they'd been less hard on themselves. And that is they wish they cut themselves a little bit more slack. One of the keys to healthy relationships is forgiveness. At some point, Your family, your spouse, your friends will screw up. And if you're not in a position to forgive them, you're going to find yourself with not a lot of relationships and a lot of anger in your life. And the same is true with self-esteem and happiness. And that is the relationship you have with yourself. You have to be willing to forgive yourself, even if you don't achieve the instinctual incentives around being the best in every cohort. And the reality is most of us won't be the the most successful person we know. We won't be the most in shape. We won't be the best looking. We won't be the most aspirational figure. And that's okay. But it's, it's, I think it's important to realize competitiveness is a wonderful thing, but also be in a position to forgive yourself and focus on, you know, most of the people you and I three know, and 
are in the kind of the 90th, 97th, 98th percentile, 99th percentile of blessings. If you live in America and you have a decent income and you can vote and you're healthy, that kind of puts you right away in the 99th percentile of the seven and a half billion people on this planet. But we Mm -hmm. focus on the 1% we aren't. And that's important. It's important to be motivated. But it's also, as you get older, hopefully you maintain the perspective where you can kind of turn around and look at the other 99% of your blessings and pat yourself on the back and be a little less tough on yourself. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that. It reminds me of something a mentor once told me who I worked with. He said that, you know, he said, you basically have set your standards of success based on the people that you interview. He said, so your entire worldview is based on nothing but outliers. And that that was such a wake up call for me. I thought, wow, really? Because, you know, like I know for a fact that I will never accomplish many of the things that people that I've interviewed have. Like, I'm never going to be Tim Ferriss. I know that, you know, Um it was such an eye-opening thing. And, and, you know, I think that that's such a, it was funny because it was, you know, it was about having standards, but also at the same time having, you know, realistic expectations. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's funny you say that about Tim Ferriss. I went to this um, gala, the Whitney gala, and they were honoring Michael Bloomberg. And I thought to myself, you know, why am I not Michael Bloomberg? (laughs) I mean, why have I not been able to start a media company as successful as him, be as charitable as him, He's just sort of checked so many boxes. And what, what it comes right down to is, look, you're going to, it, it, look, there's no silver bullet here. It's, it's striving. It's holding yourself accountable. Life is finite. It goes fast. It's important you hold yourself accountable, but also be willing to forgive yourself and move on with the important business of life. And so it's striking that balance. And there's no user's manual here. But the people, you know, when we talk about money, money usually comes down to a number. And most of us have some general semblance of the number of our net worth or how much money we make every year. And we start to anchor off of that as an indication of our success. And ultimately, it becomes a big input to our happiness. So that number translates to our happiness. And the way to think of it is that that number is not your story. It is impossible to ever get to, that number is infinite. It can always get bigger and there's always going to be people with a much bigger number. So you're setting yourself up for disappointment. What that number is or what money is, is it's the ink in the pen that writes the story and it may enable you to write chapters you otherwise wouldn't write. Money is a wonderful thing. It might make the story burn a little bit brighter because of, 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 of the options money gives you. But it's not the story. And you need to find other things about your story, whether it was taking a risk, you know, having a podcast, impacting people, being a wonderful father, being a, a great friend, doing something different, taking a risk, being an entrepreneur, serving your country, being a good neighbor. There's just so many ways to build a narrative of satisfaction and happiness as opposed to just being focused on the number. It's it's not the story, it's the ink in that pen. And it's important, I'm very focused on economics. I'm more like your parents, I think. I think it's hugely important. But the relationship between money and happiness is clear, and that is there is a relationship. From kind of zero income to call it $100,000, there's a direct correlation between that income and your happiness. People who make $80,000 a year are much happier than people making 30. But once you get to a point where you have a certain level of housing, uh, opportunities, financial security can absorb a healthcare scare, have enough money to take vacations, 
In St. Louis, that's 80 grand a year. In Manhattan or San Francisco, that's at least five or 600 grand a year. So a lot of it's where you live. But once you get to that point, happiness and income flatline. And that is, there's no correlation. Now, billionaires are no less happy than millionaires. That's also a myth, but they're no more happy. So my advice around money and happiness is, yeah, in your 20s and 30s, bust a move. Be very focused on getting to that number. And that number is a function of where you live, your expectations, the kind of lifestyle you want to lead. It's important to get to that number. But once you get to that number, happiness is driven by other things, not an increase in your income. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Wow. Wow. Um, So I do want to ask you a little bit more about this, but there's one other thing you said here that struck me. You said the truth about 90 plus percent of entrepreneurs is that we start companies not because we're so skilled, but because we don't have the skills to be an effective employee. And I feel like I'm the poster child for that as the person who got fired from every real job I ever had. Uh, So I I wonder, is that just a, a common thing across the board? And, uh, you know, why is it then if that's the case, we paint them as these sort of superheroes? Oh, we, we romanticize entrepreneurs. They're our new Jesus Christ, right? Especially tech entrepreneurs <laughs> and billionaires. It, it, yeah. I, I'm in addition to being an academic and I'm an entrepreneur where I've made my money in small businesses. I've started nine companies and people romanticize entrepreneurs because we're risk takers and pioneers. And there's these incredibly well-publicized examples of entrepreneurs who are you know, quote unquote, changing the world and flying around in their golf streams. The reality is, is that on a risk adjusted basis, if you have the opportunity And this is what I tell my kids who come into my office hours and want advice on career. If you have the opportunity to go to work for a great big company on a risk adjusted basis, you're better off going to work for the platform, the company. 
They are, they're incredible platforms. They take good care of their employees. There's a lot of cliches about big companies, but they're usually on a risk-adjusted places, really good places to work. Most entrepreneurs are people who didn't have access to that. The guy who, the guy who starts your, started your dry cleaner never had the opportunity to go work for Google or General Electric. So he or she had no choice. Guys like you and me, I worked at Morgan Stanley for two years, and I was a chocolate mess. I was too insecure to survive in a big company. Every time people would go into a conference room, I would think they were talking about me. Mm-hmm. I was too selfish to survive in a company like that. Fortunately, it was only a two-year program, and then you have to go back to business school. But I couldn't handle working for people I perceived not as intelligent as me, even though most of the time they probably were as intelligent or more. There's yeah. a lot of administrative BS you got to put, put up with a big company. You have to develop more consensus. I just couldn't survive in a big company. And I realized uh, I didn't have the skills. And uh, my, my uh, stallmate at Morgan Stanley is still there. And we compared, uh, we, we still stay in contact and we compared very openly our lives and our economic situation. And we ended up almost at the exact same place, him after 25 years of Morgan Stanley, me after nine different businesses. But the reality is I've endured a lot more ups and downs. I mean, the highs were higher when I took my first company public. That was an incredible high. Selling L2 to Garden was an incredible high. But I have been beaned in the face. And there's been times in my life where I was very economically stressed, very worried and freaked out about economics and my, my prospects and my ability to take care of my family. And his was always just sort of a steady march upward. So on a risk-adjusted basis, if you have access to these incredible platforms called big, good companies, you're probably better off going there than starting your business. The infant mortality rate on most businesses is somewhere between 70 and 80%. It's mm-hmm. a very difficult way to make a living. The upsides are enormous, and those are the ones we talk about. We don't talk about the people who bang their head against a wall, lose their money, lose their friend's money, their in-law's money, and get into just this serious rut. Uh, you know, depression. I mean, entrepreneurship is a full body contact sport and some people just don't have the constitution for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, You know, it's, it's like, I hear you talk about this and I think about something a mentor told me. He said, once he said, you know, like he said, people try to do things where they don't have any advantages. And then you go and you hear the stories of people like Chris Saka and you're like, okay, wait a minute. Yeah, you were it, like, I don't think he would be Chris Saka if it hadn't been for working at Google. Like, and, you know, this old mentor said, he said, look, he's like, you want to start a tech company, go work at Google first. You're going to be much more likely to succeed if you do. You'll increase the probability of that happening significantly. Yeah, look, platforms and pedigree are super important. You and I both went to great platforms. UCLA and Cal are, plat- are platforms. I graduated, you graduated with a 2.97. I graduated, no joke, from UCLA with a 2.27, which is not easy to do. It's not easy to graduate with a 2.27 because <laughs> I was on academic probation about six times. And then yeah. I got into Morgan Stanley. How did I do that? I'm not proud of this. I lied about my grades. This was back in an era where they didn't have digital technologies and they couldn't check your transcripts. And then Berkeley, again, decided to take a chance on me, God knows why, and they let me into their business school. And I'd like to think that I proved that decision to be a good decision. But Morgan Stanley was a great platform for me. It was the reason I got into Berkeley, was Berkeley said, okay, if Morgan Stanley liked him, we're going to like him. And then the platforms and the pedigree of that gave me the opportunities, the skill set, and the credibility to start my first money and then raise money. And, and it was sort of an upward spiral from there with some pretty serious 
gut punches. But you know, the, the, re, the reality is platforms and pedigree are incredibly important in our society. And we like to think that it's a meritocracy. And if you work hard and you're a good person, it'll all work out. That's not entirely true. Uh, a lot of it is around how strong your LinkedIn profile looks. So kind of what I say, you know, your income trajectory as a younger person is largely based on two things. The first is certification, where you went to college, what kind of licenses, what kind of degrees you have, whether it's a CFA or you went to school at uh, WashU, a fantastic school. The second is your zip code. Two thirds of economic growth over the next 20 years is going to be in about 30 super cities around the nation. So just show me someone who went to Dartmouth and lives in Manhattan or San Francisco. I'll show you someone making $150,000 plus by the time they're 30. Show me someone who dropped out of junior college and is living in Little Rock, Arkansas. I'll show you someone who's lucky they're, if they're making 50000 by the time they're 30. So we have a caste system. It's zip code and it's credentials. So the advice here is simple. Get certified, whatever that means. College isn't for everybody, but if you can get through it and you can get to a good school, by all means, do it. If you can, try and get some form of certification. And two, while you're young, before you start collecting dogs and kids, get to a city. You may move out, but you'll be, playing, you'll be playing tennis with the best players in the world. And when you play with people who are better than you, it raises your game. And when you're in New York or San Francisco or Shanghai or London, you are rallying every day with Roger Federer, and you are going to get much better at your game. And even if you leave, you're going to find wherever you go, you're the best player on the court. Mm, wow. Wow. Um, so one thing that uh, I, I really wonder is, you know, like just hearing you say that, it makes me think I'm really glad that it took as long as it did for me to get a book deal with a publisher because I happened to get it with uh, Penguin Portfolio, which I know is yep. basically got a really you know, reputable as alumni. And I, I've seen this happen to friends. I saw people who signed book deals early on with publishers who played them, you know, low advances and they send shitty contracts and none of them have ever written a book again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so how many books have you written, Shane? So I've done two, two with two with Penguin, one self-published one that actually really out of a series of freakish coincidences became a Wall Street Journal bestseller, which led to the book deal with Penguin. That's great. That's a great story. So you you kind of crashed the party. So I did. I, 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 I'm the person who doesn't belong there in a lot of ways. Like I always have thought that it was like, how did the hell did I end up here of all places? Yeah. So we're both with the same publisher. I love my editor, but you know, it's basically up to you. And we're supposedly with, mm -hmm. we're, I think we're arguably with the best business book publisher in the world, which I would describe yeah. as the tallest midget because, you know, <laughs> there's not, they're not, you know, there's no magic there. You're, you, yeah. you write the book and then you market it. And Absolutely. so I can't imagine what bad book publishers are like, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're smart people, they're nice, but it's, uh, you know, writing a book is like serving in the Marines. You're glad you did it, you know, yep. past tense. And I think it's like giving birth and that there must be some hormone that gets released that makes you forget what it was right, what it was like writing the first one. Because when you write the second one in the midst of it, you're like, what, you know, what the heck was I thinking doing this again? Mm -hmm. It's not a great way to make a living. It's a great way to set yourself up and increase credibility to monetize somewhere else, whether it's speaking yeah. or bringing attention to your podcast or bringing attention to your business. But the number of people who are actually what I call affluent authors is really <laughs> tiny. I would put book yeah. writing as one of those things that's a passion, right? And that is, absolutely. you know, do it, do it after you already have some money or do it when it makes sense as an adjunct to another career. But if you think you're going to be an author, 
just get ready for a very difficult road. It's a difficult, mm-hmm. it's a difficult way uh, to make a living. But, but the upside is it's hugely rewarding. It's um, mm-hmm. you have something your kids can read after you're gone. And there's a large cohort of our society, including the media, that just they know they know how hard it is. They know you served in the Marines and they have uh, they have a a level of respect if you did the work and your book is a thoughtful research book. When I, I was on MSNBC this morning, I was on Bloomberg this afternoon, and they introduced me as the author of The Four, The Hidden DNA of you know Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google. And it feels good, as I'm sure it did for you, to be a published author. So it's like anything, you know, anything yeah. worthwhile, anything that's worth doing, is just really hard. And writing mm-hmm. books is really hard. Yeah. So, you know, really, the, something else that struck me in the book, and I think this really kind of made me, you know, this kind of is a segue to the question. You said, love and relationships are the ends. Everything else is just the means. We as a species segment love. When we are young, we take in love, our parents, teachers, caregivers. When we enter adulthood, we find transactional love. We, we love others in exchange for something that they return, their love, security, intimacy, et cetera. Then there's complete love, surrendering to loving someone regardless of whether they love you back or whether you get anything in return for that matter. No conditions, no exchange just a decision to love this person and focus solely on their well-being. And, you know, it, it, what, what, I, what that made me wonder from reading that is it seems like this book is a real departure from the topics that you've explored in the past. I mean, this is very different than writing about tech companies. And I wonder what is it that is going on in your life? Is there something that prompted you to want to write this in particular? So, yeah, yeah. So I, I wrote a book on technology. I, I like you got lucky. It was a bestseller. And my pub, I called my publisher and said, I'm writing another book. And I said, great. And, you know, what's it about? Because the way book publishing works, if you're fortunate to have a book that sells well, they want mm-hmm. you to get a second one out there as quickly as possible because the channel or the, the pump, if you will, is prime. They're like, oh, this yeah. book did well. Or pre-order a lot of the next one. So they're like, great. That's fantastic news. What's it about? You know, Amazon? What's it about? And I said, no, it's about happiness. And they're like, no, 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 no. Do not do that. Uh, we're not interested in a book on happiness. Write a book on the five, the four, Alibaba, but do not write a book on happiness. We just don't need that. And I said, well, this is kind of what I'm feeling right now, and I'm going to write this. And ultimately, they decided to publish it. But I write a blog every Friday called No Mercy, No Malice. And I find at this point in my life, I'm thinking a lot about happiness. And that is, I'm really blessed. I finally have a certain level of economic security in my life. I'm an atheist. I think this is it. I think there's going to be a point. And it's going to come faster than I would like. I can't get over how fast time is clicking by. Where I look into my kids' eyes and I'll know that our relationship is coming to an end. And that's okay because it motivates me. And one of those motivations is that I'm thinking a lot about happiness and how I can manage my own kind of mild depression and anger. When I think about my mood and how I feel about myself and the world, it doesn't foot to my blessing. So I've been trying to bring those things in line and take more of a clinical research approach to happiness and began researching uh, what are the best practices to living, not just happiness, which is a sensation, but building an arc of satisfaction such that when you do get near the end, you feel as if you've checked a lot of boxes in indelible ink and you can drop the mic. So for me, it's been a self-exploration. The process I have for writing books is... I take my most popular session in my course, and the second most popular session was called The Four uh, on these big tech platforms. I did a video on it. It got a million views, so I know it's commercially viable, and I write a book. And my most popular session is my last session. It's called The Algebra of Happiness, 
where I take the kids through a series of equations where I've attempted to distill down the best practices around my observations of the difference between being successful and unhappy, and there's a lot of those people, and being successful and happy. And I did the video, the video got 2 million views, and that's what kind of pushed my publisher over the edge and made them decide to take a, a leap on this and publish the book. But it's a hard left turn for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have a much greater chance of success if I continued on the kind of the tech train. But I write my books, my, you know, my, I have two goals. My number two, you know, my second most important goal with book writing is I want to be the most influential thought leader in the history of business. I'm not there yet, but I'm still working on it. But my goal with my writing is I want my kids to be able to read this when I'm gone and think, you know, I I understand dad better now Um, Mm -hmm. because I have some trouble, uh, I think, expressing just, just, you know, how I feel about them on a regular basis. But I want them to read this and think I really have a sense for what was going through dad's mind when we were kids. Wow. Um, amazing. Uh, this has been really, really just thought provoking and a, a mind fuck in, in the best way possible. Uh, <laughs> so I have one final question for you, which is how sure. we finish all of our interviews to the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I'm sorry, repeat the question. Yeah. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Unmistakable. Gosh, you know, I, I, I think that in the question I get when people have been interviewing me about this book is what is, is there a secret to happiness? And I'll say that unmistakable is an, uh, you know, an attribute that hopefully leads to a certain level of self-actualization or, or, or fulfillment or satisfaction. And what I would point to is that there's a lot of research on happiness. And if there is, there isn't a silver bullet. Everybody has to find their own way, but there is a best practice the largest study on happiness ever done uh, was a study done out of Harvard called the Harvard Grant Study. And they tracked 400 men. I think they started in 1929. They were all age 19. And they tracked everything from their food intake, their exercise, their careers, their income, their relationships, their physical attributes, you know, what their hobbies. And then they regularly queried them on their levels of satisfaction and happiness. And this study went for 80 years until the last of the 400 died. And then they had the formidable task of compiling all this data and trying to make heads or, sense, uh, heads or tails of it. And the study actually outlived four principal scientists because the scientists kept dying because this thing went on for 80 years. So early 2000s, they decided to try and take a swack at compiling and marinating in this data. And what they found is, is that the best practice or the, the strongest signal or predictor of an individual's happiness wasn't income, wasn't health. Uh, it was simply put the depth and number of meaningful relationships you had. And that is at work, do you feel respected and admired? And just as importantly, do people feel a sense of respect and admiration from you amongst your friends? Do you feel a sense of joy and camaraderie? And again, just as importantly, do you know they feel joy and camaraderie from you? And finally, in your family, do you feel an intense level of love and support and just as importantly, do you know that they feel loved and supported by you? And the opening sentence of this 400-page write-up on the longest or the, the, the biggest longitudinal study on happiness is the best opening sentence of any academic study ever compiled. And it's the following. It says that uh, happiness is love, full stop. Uh, and I, you know, I think that's a nice way to end it. For me, that's, that, that's what makes someone unmistakable is the investments you make 
to, to foment, reinforce, and catalyze a series of deep, meaningful relationships across your work, um, across your friends, and across your family. Amazing. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything else that you're up to? Uh, thanks for asking. So my first book, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. This book, The Algebra of Happiness, Notes on the Pursuit of uh, Success, Love, and Meaning. Uh, all of them on, you guessed it, Amazon or wherever books are sold. Uh, also, profgalloway.com is uh, where you can sign up for my weekly uh, newsletter called No Mercy, No Mouths. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Did you know that every Sunday, our community manager, Melena, sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes just like this one? All you have to do to receive it is sign up for our newsletter. Just visit unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter, and you'll get them delivered right to your inbox. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.